The last time I stood before you, I shared that the miracle of turning water to wine was more than just a neat party trick. It was more than just a neat story or a neat sign and wonder within the word that we read about. The way that Jesus manifests his glory in that story was by giving us that sign of his own death and his blood saying it would be final, it would be decisive, it'd be the ultimate purification for our sin. So I covered that. It's been a couple months now. Today's story we're covering, I believe, is no different. So often we just read over the story and we don't dig deeper into it. And that is my desire today. I want to dig deeper into what is the meaning behind this. Look beyond the words on the page is a simple story. That's what we're called when we, when we dive into the word in our quiet time, in our intimate time with the Lord, is to look beyond the words and to spend that quiet time with him. Amen? You see, this story that we're going to be covering today, I see as a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a bold statement that shook the religious leaders so much that they turned around and they fled. So it has to be important. So today we're going to be covering John 7 verse 53 through chapters 8 verse 20. Now, if you missed last week, I really do encourage you to go back and re-listen to what Pastor Corey preached on because today's sermon is so directly tied into that because it's all surrounding the same feast of the tabernacles. And so last week and this week are very close, and I think it's important to hear both to grab the full picture of the story of what's going on. You see, there is added significance to the actions of Jesus in the fulfillment of Scripture revolving around this specific feast. Now, for context, uh, today, it's jumping right after last week that Jesus stood up at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and declared that he was the source of living water. He was the fount of living water. And then after that, he, we see or we read about how the the uh, chief priests and, and the Pharisees and, and all the religious rulers, they go in and they argue and they bicker about who Jesus is and what just took place. And we all know Nicodemus stands up and says what Nicodemus does. Very powerful moment there. So this is the very next morning. It's right after that took place. So we're early in the morning. It says that Jesus comes back and he's teaching again in the temple. So that's where we're leaving off. So... I think it's important for us to, to keep in mind last week by, by looking at how Jesus made this bold declaration and we had the religious rulers scheming from their, behind their closed doors. And we're going to kind of dissect that today. So let's read. Let's start in chapter 7, verse 53. And everyone went to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. Verse 7. 
So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to pause right here because there's something very important I need to cover first before we really get into the teaching of today's scripture. Now, there is a reason why Pastor Corey stopped at verse 52 last week. Because why didn't he just read that short little tiny verse and end that chapter? You see, it's debated on whether or not verses, or chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 should even be included in the book of John. And so we're going to be covering that today. And that's why we're starting with that. But let's continue on verse 12, and then we'll get to that point. Verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Amen. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Praise God. Dear Lord, I just ask that you would cover us today. Lord, I ask that you would just move through us and release what you wish to impart upon our lives. Lord, I ask that you would open up our hearts to receive you, our minds to receive you. Help us to concentrate on your word and give you all glory and praise as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You see, it's important for me to reiterate what Pastor Corey has already instructed us on textual criticism, as he has been talking about the different manuscripts on, on how there's a little bit of differences, especially within this book of John. He has brought that up multiple times. You see, this is especially true for this portion that we're covering today. Now, to remind you, textual criticism is the discipline where scholars evaluate both external and internal evidence to try to determine determine which reading is most like the original. So explain what I'm talking about. Our New Testament, as we see it today, when we open up our Bible, we have the New Testament laid out the way it is. That was composed as early as 107 AD, and again in 397 at the Council of Carthage. So it's pretty, pretty old as far as what we see today. And that's made up of a whole bunch of different, the Gospels and, and and the letters and everything that we see. 
There's a lot more to it, but that's just the real basics of, of where we're at. It is based on the translations of thousands of Greek manuscripts that are, for the most part, remarkably close in their readings. And when I say thousands, I mean there are 5,300 Greek translations or manuscripts, there's 10,000 Latin, and there's 9,000 miscellaneous copies of the New Testament existing today. And they're unearthing more all the time, adding and making that number grow. So there's a lot of different copies. And what's amazing to me, it's amazing to the world, is that the, the variations between these manuscripts are very, very minor. For the most part, across the whole thing, they're extremely minor. I, I mean, I, it's like looking at uh, a certain part of Scripture, and the only difference is the order of the words. You might have Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus amongst all those different tra uh, translations and copies. And if there is any bigger difference, there, the context is still the same. The meaning within that, sen that sentence is still the same, and the doctrine it always remains the same. So of all these different copies, it's the same. Praise God for that. Amen. It is the work of textual analysis to seek which of the texts are most consistent. And so that they're combining those to give us what we have in our laps today in the written word of God as the most consistent of all those thousands of manuscripts. Then we have the story of the adulterous woman. This is a little bit different than just having a difference in meaning or words being in different orders or where it lays within John. Here we have a story that in the earlier manuscripts, meaning the manuscripts closer to when John wrote it, it did not exist. It was not there. So that's why I say it's debated on whether or not it should be in this uh, book of John. It's a little bit more than just a difference in the order of words or the meaning. It just wasn't there in the earlier manuscripts. Or if the real early ones, it wasn't in this part of chapter 8. Some of those manuscripts have it listed at the very end of John. And so that's been the debate of theologians over the many, many years. And I'm talking about since St. Augustine in the year 200. So it's been talked about for many years. And with that, there's many who question if it should even be in John as the authentic, inherent word of God. Some theologians say yes, and these scholars generally hold that it reports to the authentic historic event that is true to the character of Jesus. So they say it holds up to who Jesus is. It doesn't change doctrine. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't take anything away. It shows Jesus as God. It shows his glory. So many theologians believe this. Others say no, that it actually disrupts what's being told here in John. And what they mean is, when you look at verse 52 to verse 12 in chapter 8, it kind of adds a day. So in a sense, they're saying that there shouldn't be this added mourning that is described in verse 53 when everyone goes home and the next morning Jesus comes from, from the Mount of Olives. They're saying that's what disrupts the order of events. So that's the two different opinions that theologians debate about. Some very versions of our Bibles today even put at the very bottom, they describe this. So they'll put this section in quotes. So if you have your, your di different translations, you can look at that. If your Bible has that little footnote at the bottom describing this already. Um, overall, through the translator, 
it's believed that the older the manuscript, the more reliable it is. And so with, with this story, the earliest manuscript to contain was around the 4th century A.D. However, there's other historical texts that reference this very story as early as 110 A.D. and others in the mid-200s. Now, put that in reference, they think John passed away around 100 A.D., so it's pretty close to when he passed that there's other historical uh, letters and uh, sermons that have referenced this story. So regardless of my very minimal history lesson, it's been the overall belief to keep this story in our translations. And that's why in our Bibles they haven't removed this story. We've continued to teach on this because it stays true to who Jesus was. Amen for that. Hence why it's been left. Of course, I always encourage you, don't just take my word for it or Pastor Corey's word for it or Ed's word for it. Go and do your own study. Look through See what men who are much, much smarter than me have to say about this. So I always encourage you guys to do that, of course. So regardless of my opinion and the the different opinions of theologians, I can say this. I feel that this story is true to the character of Jesus, and it is worth our while to study it. I would also take this a step further that I believe through my studies that this holds up to Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to jump into why I believe this and tie it all together for you guys. So I believe that this is Ryan's opinion. It should belong there, especially where it's at, based on where it lines out with the Feast of the Tabernacles, as well as Old Testament prophecy. So with that, let's jump into that first section that I read, and let's break this apart. So there's many things I want to highlight about this as we go through and teach on this. But there's three things I want us to keep in mind as I go verse by by verse. The first is the misuse of Mosaic law. This is the trap or the test that John refers to the Pharisees doing. They're trying to trap Jesus. In order for them to trap him, they're actually twisting God's law to do it. Or not necessarily twisting it, but they're misusing it. They're going out of order in the way they're supposed to go. The second is, what did Jesus really write in the dust? And I think the bigger question is, why did Jesus write in the dust? And so we're going to talk about that as a second point. And the third is more of an opinion. I just want to say how amazingly this ties into what Pastor Corey brought us last week. How amazing this story is tied into Jesus' declaration of him saying, I am the source of living water. I am the fount of living water. It's amazing to me how this ties in so well to that. You see, again, we see Jesus giving his I am statement. We even read it, him saying, I am. Here again, he's declaring to God's chosen people, I am. I am God. Amen for that. So in looking at these three points, it kind of brought me to the conclusion of that this story belongs in the book of John. And I feel the story sticks to the theme. And as I prayed earlier, that Jesus is God. Amen? And that this book shows the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's first look at verse 2. This is the trap, the misuse of Mosaic law. Verse 2, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us to, 
uh, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Hence, that's the trap. They said this to test him. You see, a history lesson is whenever someone was caught in adultery, according to God's law, and in this time and culture, both the man and the woman may be brought to the gate of Nicanor. I hope I'm saying that right. It's leading to the temple courtyard, and it's at that place that they would be accused. If found guilty, they would be stoned. The Lord is very clear in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about how to handle adultery on a whole. He really spells it out for us. In order for this punishment to be set, a witness had to be present to identify those in violation of adultery. Now, when I say a witness is needed, I mean a witness is needed. They had to catch them in the actual physical act of adultery. You couldn't just have a married woman leaving a different man's house, and now all of a sudden there's adultery involved. They actually had to catch them in the physical act. Does that make sense? Now, if there is no witness, then no stoning would take place, but a different ceremony would. And this was called the ceremony of bitter waters, and it would be done to identify if there's been infidelity. This ritual involves a priest bending down and grabbing dust from the temple floor and mixing it in holy water. He would then write out a curse on a piece of paper and then take water and wash that curse away and then give that dusty water to the woman to drink. Now what this is doing is saying, if you really did commit adultery, then God deal with you. Drink this. And if they would have a sign of, of that curse manifesting or they'd have some kind of affliction of their, their physical body, then it's true and God came against them in that curse. So that's the ceremony of bitter water. And this is when the husband would do it separate. They would take, he would take the adulterous woman to the priest and this would all take place. You wouldn't necessarily have a huge crowd around. So that's number one, something different than what the Pharisees are doing here. Now, I want to note that all of this, the stoning and the ceremony of bitter waters would take place with a priest and not Jesus, who's a rabbi. But that's a sermon on its own on how I think they're ignorantly declaring him our high priest. Again, a sermon for another time. However, in this instant, they brought only the woman, no man, no husband, and no witness. At least we don't know that those three important people weren't there because it doesn't list them. But if it doesn't list them, then it kind of tells me they weren't present. Now, unless I'm really confused about adultery, I think it takes two to tango. Is that right? So where's the, where's the dude? Where's the husband? Where's the witness? That's a very important step in, in adultery. It's important within the law. So this right here is why they're misusing the law to, to trap Jesus. I'm guessing with the man, did they pay him off before? Is he a part of the trap? That's kind of my guess is when we ask, where's the man? He probably was a part of this. He was paid off or allowed to flee when they caught the woman. But what about the husband? Wouldn't you think if there was an adulterous woman, the husband would be pretty mad? Maybe he was paid off too. Maybe he's on the side of these Pharisees and this is a way that he can get at Jesus. We don't know. And again, where is the witness? I assume that he's present, especially because the Pharisees in the word says in the act. They caught her in the act. 
So maybe they're the witnesses. I don't know. It doesn't say. It's not highlighted. So right here it shows how out of step they are with the law, with God's oral law. They are in violation. So here they are walking up like a bunch of peacocks before Jesus, but they're the ones that are sinning. It's not just the woman here. They're in violation of God's oral law. So they can't be doing what they're doing. That's the whole point. Then this is what I believe and what I think John is really alluding to and definitely what Jesus saw is it's obvious to everyone that these men are not observing the law. It's a trap based on their lack of adherence to God's law, which I find funny because it's the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are the scribes? You have the scribes that are the lawyers. They're the ones that interpreted and they taught the law. And then you have the Pharisees, which are, are kind of the middle of the ground. They're not, they're not the rich men like the, the Sadducees, but they still, they adhere to God's law to every dot and tittle. They follow it precisely in their everyday life. Everything that they have to do, the Pharisees, is about God's law. So I have to guess that these guys were cringing as they were doing this, knowing exactly what they're doing, that they're twisting God's law to get what they want. But to me, that shows how much they truly hated Jesus. They're willing to step out of God's law to get Jesus. That's an important thing to remember here. And we tend to look at the woman in the story as a great sinner while overlooking the fact that the scribes and Pharisees were doing just this. I know I'm guilty of this. Growing up, you read the story of the adulterous woman, the great sinner, and the Pharisees tried to use her in trapping Jesus but you don't really think about how much the sin and how much these men were in violation of doing this. Certainly, they don't care about her at all. If they'd cared about her, like I said earlier, they would have held this all in a private uh, room somewhere else or kept her in custody somewhere else, not bringing the formal charges against her in the public's eye and everyone's, as everyone's watching because it said that Jesus was teaching in the multitude of the people. This is around many people. It would be humiliating for her to be sitting there on the ground or standing there as these men are saying, this woman has committed adultery amongst hundreds of people around. Be like me bringing up someone from in here and saying, this woman has committed adultery. It's humiliating to take place. And do you think Jesus recognized the humility she was going through? But even more serious than sinning against this woman, these religious leaders were also sinning against the Son of God. And I believe they knew they were sinning against the Son of God. And I'm going to explain why. Their aim was to destroy Jesus, and they were using both the woman and Scripture to do it. They weren't concerned about God's honor, about holy, holiness among God's people. All they cared about was using the law as ammunition to trap Jesus. They're using scripture to judge others, but not using as a mirror to hold up and judge themselves to make sure that they were walking holy. It's important that we recognize the sin that they are operating out of, which leads directly into my second point. What did he write in the dust? Why did he even write in the dust? Verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. 
Now, I've heard and read different interpretations of what and why he wrote in the dust. I have shared them before in different sermons that I've, I've taught. I know Pastor Corey has covered this before. Instead of going through each one on what theologians think, uh, I'm just going to share what I believe to be the most compelling reason for why Jesus wrote in the dust and what he wrote in the dust. So today I'm going to be teaching off what I have found to be the most compelling. Amen. Now, I just explained what the scribes and Pharisees were supposed to do or should have done with the adulterous woman. But what I didn't share is what's the role of the priest? What is the priest supposed to do when they bring an adulterous woman or those who have been in adultery to a priest? What, what is supposed to be done? You see, the priest is required to stoop down and write the law that has been broken in the dust. This is something that is a part of God's oral law. This is what the priest's job was. They come walking up, the priest stoops down and starts writing it in the dust. And what he is supposed to write is the violation that took place, the law that was broken. And in this case, the law that was broken was naoth, or adultery. It would be written in Hebrew, across, along with the names of those being accused. Hence, it's important to have the witnesses. Now, it didn't have to be just in the dust of the floor. The important part was that it had to be in dust. That way it wasn't permanent. It could be brushed away. It was the whole purpose of why they would stoop down and write it on the ground. And we see Jesus doing just this. He stoops down in verse 6, and then again in verse 8, he stoops down a second time and writes in the dust. Now, I'm sure in their eyes, they're walking up, they're bringing this accused woman, and they're thinking, oh good, he's doing what's culturally expected. We have him. He took the bait. We have Jesus. But I find it interesting that something different takes place in verse 7, something unexpected that they weren't expecting because they're walking full of pride, and then they see Jesus stoop down. He's starting to write in the dust. But then verse 7 says they continue. Verse 7, so then they continued asking him. Well, if he was doing what they wanted him to do, why would they continue in the accusation? What's the point? See, what I see taking place is these men, misusing the word of God, come to Jesus with a trap accusation. As they come walking and shouting, he simply stoops down the ground, and it says he does it silently. He doesn't say a word, and that's what's culturally expected. I'm sure as he's writing, they become silent. They just stand there, and they're waiting. What is he going to write? Is he going to follow what we're hoping he will do? But actually, then they start, and they continue in their outbursts again. They continue yelling at him in whatever way that they were doing this. Why? Most likely is because they did not like what he was writing in the dust. Most likely, that first time he stooped down, he wasn't writing adultery in the dust across the ground. But he was probably writing whatever violation that they were in charge of. Whatever violation they committed. Whatever law they broke. Because if he would have wrote adultery, they would have continued in their original trap of trapping Jesus, and it would have been completely different in what we're reading here. The outcome would have been different. But it's interesting that as he writes this, he stands up, 
And this is the most famous part that we all know. He who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And I think this is the moment that they sit in there, they're sitting recognizing that they have royally messed up. This is the abort mission, abort mission part of the story. They walk up all full of pride and excited to trap Jesus, but then they're realizing, hey, this is backfiring. Something's going on here. So this ties into my third point on why it's so important that this leads right after Jesus has declared the fount of living waters. This is why it's so important that this ties into the Feast of Tabernacles. This is why this is all one big I am God type statement. See, Jesus is taking this a step further as he always does. It's not just what we see for face value, but he's going to take it a little bit more to declare himself as God, as the Messiah. So to understand that, I want to dive into more history. Remember, these Jewish men had scripture memorized. All their life, they have been memorizing scripture. Also, they have been immersed in the duties and the significances of the feast, more than what we can even try to understand because they have grown up with it. Since age 12, for the men, and probably before that, they've heard their fathers teach on what is the meaning of each feast. They had that scripture memorized, but they also, at the feast, they had those words spoken out over them. It's been pounded in their head since age 12 of what is the meaning behind each scripture, behind each feast. Every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the, and I hope I can say this right, the Kohen Hagadol, or the high priest, would immerse himself in the mikveh, the baptismal tank, in order to be ceremonially cleansed between each separate portion of the day's sacrifice. So they would see the high priest dip in this big baptismal tank 11 times throughout the day in water. At the end of Yom Kippur, there was a celebration and there would be a great rejoicing because God had received the sacrifice and everyone's sin has been rolled forward another year until the Messiah comes. To end the day, he would, and to announce the party was over, kind of saying, okay, everyone go home he would announce a verse. And everyone expected this. Everyone knew that this would be the great ending to the feast of Yom Kippur, that the high priest would step out and declare a scripture. So this is why he said that these men had their scripture memorized and they understood the meaning of the feasts. And at those feasts, scripture was pounded into their head. This is one of those scriptures that is just pounded into their head. And it's Jeremiah 17, 13. This scripture says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fount of living waters. Does that make sense to you guys? What's going on? This is a prophecy for this story. You see, if the way it reads, if you elaborate on each Hebrew word, it would say something like this. O Yahweh, the immerser of Israel, all those who leave your way shall be put to shame or publicly embarrassed. Those who turn aside from my way shall have their names written in the dust and blotted out. 
for they have departed from Yahweh, the fount of Mayim Hayim, the waters of life. Can you imagine these men having this verse memorized, having it said over them every year, over and over and over again, and now they're standing in the temple, watching it take place right before their very eyes. See, this is more than just a story that should be debated on whether or not it should be there or not. This is a story that falls directly in line with Jesus' declaration in the morning before, or the evening before, and it falls in line with what Jeremiah had prophesied thousands of years before this. See, when Pastor Corey taught last week, when Jesus stood up and declared himself the source of living water, it says in John 7, 37-39, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This declaration was ringing in his, these men's ears from the night before, from the previous day. There, they could hear him still saying, I am the fount of living waters. For him then to stoop down the ground and all of a sudden write their sin in the earth. So Jesus gave them a chance. They could have taken the embarrassment and repented before the Lord. But instead they rejected him and they, in turn they had their names written in the dust. This passage in Jeremiah is a messianic prophecy of what the Messiah would do when he came. And in this passage in John we see Jesus fulfill that Prophecy. This truly is an oh crap moment for these men. It's not that they just messed up. They're recognizing that, hey, this guy's the Messiah, and we're saying he's not. How do you deny all the different things in the feast that's taken place and all the I am statements that Jesus is doing and saying in the fulfilling of the law? How do you still say that he is not the Messiah? I understand that hindsight's always 2020, but that's pretty bold to us, isn't it? This is all happening real time for these men. And in verse 8 it says, And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, the who? the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in his midst. You see, any Jewish man would have heard this verse, Jeremiah 17, 13, quoted every year since age 12. That means at age 70, he would have heard it 58 times. Every year. This is why I believe that it was the older men that started to leave first because they were quicker to understand what was taking place. You see, it should be this way. It's even scriptural. The old men should know their scripture better than the young men, right? Right? Do you hear me, old men? You should know your scripture better than the young men. You should be leading the young men by acting first. Even though this was done in their sin, they're recon recognizing that. I am going to take it and say to the old men of this church, us young men should look to you for when to act because you are more experienced in God's word. Amen? Amen. 
You see, these old men left first because they understood immediately the fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, 13. And in their embarrassment, they fled. In their conviction, they fled. Can you imagine their conviction? Talk about the pride comes before the fall. They walk up there thinking they're going to trap Jesus just to have Jesus publicly write their sin in the dust. And then a second time, stoop down and write their names just as what was culturally expected. Talk about conviction. Talk about not being able to deny before the court what's taken place. They knew in that moment who this man was and what was taking place. That he, he was the source of living water. And according to Jeremiah 17, 13, he was the fount of Mayim Ham, the waters of life. He was the Messiah. And they still turned their back on him and walked away. That is sad to me. That these learned men knew exactly what's going on and they still turned their back on Jesus. We need to take to heart what took place here and recognize as a warning. Let's not do this. Let's not do what they did. See, as we read on verse 10, then Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What I find really cool about this is she just watched all this take place. And she may or may not have known the scripture, being that she wasn't put through the schooling like these men were. But I'm sure she still understood culturally. Plus, she understood because she didn't see adultery written in the sand. She did not see only her name written in the sand. She saw the violation of these religious rulers and their names, not hers, so she could stand up boldly and declare, no one, Lord, no one has condemned me. This goes beyond just these men walking away and it, and it being empty before her, because remember, this was in the multitude. There's people everywhere around them. What's important for her is that she reads in the dust that her name is not there. Now, maybe this is a stretch, but I take this right back to the ceremony of bitter waters. Who is Jesus? Fount of living waters. What did he do on the ground? He wrote in the dust. You see, it was in that ceremony, if there was no witnesses, no man, no husband, that you would go to the high priest to do the ceremony of bitter waters. So in a, in, in a way, this is what this is. This is the ceremony of bitter waters taking place. Who is Jesus? He's the holy water. Who's, where does the dust come from? The, the dust of the temple. And she was not condemned. God has been declaring over and over and over again, I am God. These Pharisees brought forward this woman to be cursed. And God says, you are innocent. This takes it a step deeper than just not being stoned. This means to her that she is fully free. She, did not, she was not convicted to be stoned, and she's not convicted by God himself through the ceremony of bitter waters. She drank because she was thirsty, and she came out clean. Amen? 
Can you imagine? Putting yourself in her shoes, can you imagine? God standing right before you. And he says, neither have I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What is sad to me, though, is the missed opportunity. The missed opportunity of these religious rulers. They literally heard the voice of God in their conscience, convicting them, saying, you know what you're doing. You know the law. You know who this is. You know I've sent the Messiah, but they still chose to walk away. Instead of receiving the conviction and repenting, they departed from him, just like Jeremiah prophesied. I want us to learn from this. I want us to look at what the Pharisees did. I want us to look at what Jesus did. I want us to look at what the woman did. But before there, I want to continue in the rest of the scripture because there's something more important here that we can gain from. There's still some more significance that ties in this whole feast to talk about why Jesus called himself the light of the world. Verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am, what do you say? I am God. That's God's name. God, the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. <laughs> in a way, he's pointing out what these Pharisees and scribes just did, saying, you are not walking in the light. You're walking in darkness. I am the light of the world, and you're not walking with me. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness to yourself. Your witness is not true. Talk about calling the kettle black. They are reaming him about a witness, but then they just literally tried to convict a woman without a witness. Hypocrites. Brood of vipers. That's what these men are. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone and I am with the Father who sent me. I am, I am. I'm true, I'm true. Over and over again, he's just telling them this. It is also written in your law, again referring to what they just observed, something written in the law, something written in scripture, something prophesied about, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one, I am, one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. That's one scary statement. Let us never be in that place where we don't know the Father because we don't know Jesus. Amen? These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. He taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. There's so much to this section that I really don't have time to get into. But of what I can, I, I feel there's a few things that are very important. In a way, Jesus is saying, guys, come on. What don't you get? 
Are you kidding me right now? He's saying, I have witnessed to you over and over and over again through this whole feast for days now. What don't you get? I am the source of living waters. I am the light of the world. I have just fulfilled scripture in your presence, but your hearts are so hard. You're ruled by your flesh. You only obey your law. You have eyes, but you cannot and you will not see. That is what he's saying to them over and over and over again as he's saying, I am, I am. I am true. I am the light of the world. I have fulfilled your scripture. I am. Not only did Jesus just proclaim that he was the fountain of living water, but he then fulfills prophecy in Jeremiah. And then he says a third time. This is his third mic drop, if you would. This is the third time that he stomps his foot down and says, enough. He declares by returning and teaching the multitudes in the temple and saying, I am the light of the world. I want you to recognize something very important. This very morning, on this day that he's talking, in the temple before dawn, four 75-foot menorah lamps stood and they had been lit all eight days of the feast. And that morning before dawn, they would, some men would climb up to the top and, and snuff them out. Now, most likely, Jesus was standing in that very place where the night before those lamps were lit. Does anybody know what those lamps are called? They're called the light of the world. Jesus is standing in the place and declaring, I am the light in the world, just when they had just just snuffed out these candles. He's declaring forever, I am the light of the world until the end of days. I am the light of the world that is better than these 75-foot lampstands. I am the light of the world. Here again, we have a meaning within the feast. He is declaring himself God before all the people. It's amazing to me that the way he does this is not just making random statements. We have to, have to really look at Scripture and realize that every little bit of Scripture has a deeper meaning in it. Every statement of Jesus, every I am statement has a deeper meaning. And it's up to us to dig and find what that is. That is what it means to truly study God's Word. Amen? You see, in this entire feast, it's, as Pastor Corey had walked us through, that it all started with his brothers dogging on him, saying, oh, you, you're, you're not going to go. You're, if you really want to make something yourself, then, then you should go to this. I mean, they, they don't believe themselves. So then in that very same feast, he comes and he makes three declarations of I am before everybody. Anyone who knows anything in Scripture should have seen that this man is the Messiah. Which is a lesson for us. If we know anything of Scripture, we should see that this man is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is God himself, and his glory is to be recognized. Amen? Now, where does this take us? What can we get out of this? I want to talk about our response. What is our response to this? Is it it should be more than just a scriptural study. It's more than just recognizing 
Now, this is a cool story within Scripture. I want us to glean from this. So what is it? What can we take from our, our learning of this passage? How about we look at this story as a reminder, a reminder of how we are to act, a reminder of how we are to conduct ourselves, how we should see ourselves, a reminder. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. You see, I see this as a test in response. How can we learn to deal with forgiveness, with judgment, with condemnation, and healing by looking at Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, and looking at the adulterous woman? I want to highlight the compassion that Jesus operated in, how he we are called to look and to act and model after Jesus and not act and model ourselves, our lives after these religious rulers. We are to follow Jesus. And I also want to take it a step deeper, and I want to compare the different reactions to correction by looking at how the Pharisees reacted to correction and looking at how Aaron and Miriam acted to correction out of Numbers chapter 12. I'll make that quick, but I really, as I go through that, listen with your heart and compare yourself. It's important as Christians and how we respond to God correcting us. So first, the rulers looked at this woman with disdain, with judgment and hatred. Have we been there? Yes, we probably have. What did Jesus see in those tear-filled eyes? Fear, condemnation, shame? And how did he respond with compassion, with wisdom? And with love. How many times have we felt the fear and condemnation and, and, and loss ourselves? How many times have we been in this place where we're in the dust at the feet of Jesus looking for something more? Or in the dust before the feet of our brothers and sisters and not receiving what Jesus gives, but receiving what the Pharisees probably would have given. There are two kinds of people faced who faced Jesus on that day. The religious leaders, they were pretenders who thought that if they were just smart enough, if they worked hard enough, if they prayed hard enough, that they would work their way into paradise. Then you have the woman on the other side of the coin who has given up completely. She thinks and she believes that there's no way that God could forgive her, that God doesn't love her, that there's no more hope for her. But Jesus, he stood before for both parties, and he forgave both of them. Both the woman and her accusers needed forgiveness, restoration, and healing. Jesus offered hope in all three. In my prayer and in my studying this week, as I just sat down to begin earlier this week, it's praying, Lord, what direction do I take this? What do you have for me? What do you have for your church? In my prayer time, I, I heard the Lord say this to me. He said, I have come to set the captives free, says the Lord of hosts. The downcast will be stood upright. The depressed in spirit will be given hope. I am the light of the world. I have come to cast light on the shadow places. Darkness cannot expose darkness. The sinner cannot expose a sinner. 
Where have you seen me do this before? Miriam, he said, Miriam in the tent. It was not out of righteousness that she came forward. It was out of jealousy and wrath. The same is for the Pharisees. They brought forward this woman with ill intentions, not for the sake of righteousness, but for the sake of control. Are many in the Christian church any different today? Beware of hypocrisy. How many times have we highlighted others' mistakes and sins for the sake of self-preservation and allure of holiness? We deceive ourselves, saying, iron sharpens iron. I am bringing correction to build up the church. Look to your own heart. Remove the hurt, the fear, and the sin before pointing that religious, selfish, damning finger at any other. Amen. You see, at this point in the gospel, I feel that John is really highlighting the difference between Jesus and his grace versus the Pharisees in their legalism and their hate. We are given one beautiful choice, and that choice I have for you is to follow the instructions of Jesus in word and in deed, or to follow the scribes and Pharisees through lust of our sinful nature and jealousies for control. Which one are you going to choose? And the second point, we are called to respond like Aaron and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. We saw how the Pharisees responded. We saw how the woman responded out of humility. How does Aaron respond to correction? How does Miriam respond to correction? They're who we should model after. Jesus is who we're supposed to model after. The woman in her humility saying, yes, Lord, is who we're supposed to model after, not the Pharisees and their pride. Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, and for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. When the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood, he what? The Lord stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. Do you think they're pooping their pants right there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark, saying, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I'm going to pause right there. Recognize that here, Aaron and Miriam are, are probably in their face, but they see in the door of the tabernacle the form of God Almighty, the fear that they must have. And they're all of a sudden recognizing that Moses speaks with this form, God face to face, and we dared to speak against him. I can't imagine the fear that we're feeling now that our brother Moses talked with him 
all the, all the times like this, they are finally recognizing what they have done. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there was, she was a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, and listen close, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. He owned it. He owned his sin. Did the Pharisees own their sin? No. Please do not let her be as one dead, who flesh is half consumed when he came out of his mother's womb. It goes on to say then God, or Moses pleads for her and God heals her, but sends her out for seven days. What is important here is how Aaron, how the woman took their punishment. They came to Jesus and they owned their sin. And they said, heal us, Lord. We have done it, but we ask and we have hope in your forgiveness and in your love. And in that, they were healed. So this is my call to you. Forgive and do not cling to the hurts and traumas or offense. View people through the eyes of Christ and not through the world's eyes. Remember, the standard you use in judging is the standard in which you will be judged. Respond in humility, ownership, and hope, not out of pride and condemnation. And the last one is, and always in your repentance, flee to Christ and not away. Can we do that?